0: Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as Directing Pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9am for a time of traditional worship, or at 11am for contemporary worship.
1: Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture comes from Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down, how the mountains would quake in your presence. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations, And oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you, who works for those who wait for him. You welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways. But you have been very angry with us, for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, you have turned away from us and turned us over to our sins. And yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. Don't be so angry with us, Lord. Please don't remember our sins forever. Look at us, we pray, and see that we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord.
0: I really love the city of Savannah, Georgia. How many of you have ever been to Savannah? That's a fantastic community in my estimation. The first time I went there, I was a sophomore in high school. We were going as part of an orchestra tour down to Walt Disney World. So we were on a bus and we were heading on down to uh, the land of Mickey Mouse to play our uh, stringed instruments in the America Showcase. Really exciting time, but Savannah was one of our stops along the way. Now, by this point in the trip half of the bus had come down with the stomach flu. And so there were a number of people who their sightseeing in Savannah consisted of the hotel bathroom or the local emergency room. But the rest of us had an opportunity to take this great historical tour of the Savannah area. And so we loaded up on the tour bus and the the woman in the full colonial costume that looked like she was straight out of Billy Madison took the microphone and she was telling us all sorts of Hypothetically interesting facts. And so, as a group of high schoolers who were not really engaging with the story of history at the time, we heard things about Girl Scouts and some guy named John Wesley and so on and so forth. But then the woman mentioned the house where Jingle Bells was written. And one of my disinterested fans did one of these. Can we sing it? She said, no. He said, why not? He said, because you don't know anything about it. And he said, this is boring. And that's not what we're trying to approach songs with this season. We're going to look at some of the history of some of these songs, but my goal is not to be the tour guide in colonial garb, although I would wear it well, not to be the tour guide who bores you to death with facts about the song, but my intention is that even if you don't know anything about it, you still sing it, and you sing it with joy, because that's what they're composed for. But it's my hope that as you hear some about the context of this art, Because I I believe that when we get into the context of the art, we find more points where this art intersects with our lives. That as we do that, we find deeper connection. That we find maybe a, a stronger emotional tie or a better hopefulness in this music than we had before. And so that's my goal that we're not just going to history all the fun out of these songs, but that you'll have deeper connection points with this music that really does set the soundtrack for the season as we spend time with these songs over the course of this series leading up to Christmas. Now, this is a, an Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's not necessarily a Christmas carol, although it probably falls in both categories. It's a song of hope and anticipation. Advent literally means coming or arriving, We always connect this time of year with anticipating Christmas, the event of Jesus being born into a manger in Bethlehem. But every year as we celebrate this season of anticipation, there's something about waiting. Why are we waiting for something that's already happened? And I think we get the answer to that in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is telling the Roman church, for we know that creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait for it patiently and confidently. Salvation came to us in the form of Jesus Christ through his life and his death and resurrection. So why do we wait? Advent isn't just remembering what it was like to await Christ's first appearing, but us waiting for Jesus to come again. The season Of Advent used to be celebrated something like Lent. If you've spent any time making a a sacrifice or abstaining for something, fasting or something like that through Lent, it was a season of fasting and repentance. And in this day and age, right after we get done with like a huge Thanksgiving feast and the weird consumerism of Black Friday, a, a season of fasting may not be a terrible idea. But in its initial form, it was a season of fasting and repentance. In our culture, waiting, however, has fallen out of style. We don't have to look very far to realize that in our waiting, that we still need the Prince of Peace to enter into our lives. The scriptures that we read, just like the songs that we sing, speak about God's promise to the end of war, the end of violence, the end of hatred and turmoil. And it turns out that those longings that we have in our heart are the longings of every faithful heart in every age. And that leads to our first lesson this morning. Uncertain times can give birth to songs of anticipation. Uncertain times can give birth to songs of anticipation. We're going to go to medieval times for a moment, not the restaurant theme restaurant, although we did that on the orchestra trip too. But we're going to revisit the ninth century for just a second. I don't think anybody was there the first time, but it was a time of significant political transition. Charlemagne's rule was reunifying Europe in a way that placed emphasis on education and military cunning. This unification was some of the most significant unification of Europe after the collapse of the Roman Empire some 400 years before. Charlemagne was building a European coalition against violent threats from sects like the, uh, the Nordic raiders who were coming in and some of the imperialist sects of a growing Muslim movement. It was also a time of significant religious transition. Eastern and Western churches were starting to divide over theology and politics and national borders. And because of infighting in the church about creeds and doctrine, Christianity was being splintered between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church of the time. Even in the Western church, there were followers who were desired to disconnect from Rome which they saw as largely corrupt, and the papacy as well. And that gave rise to a movement known as popular monasticism. So with that popular monasticism, people who were being cloistered away from the traditional sanctuary setting and into different monasteries, there was a rise in people who were monks. And one of the practices of that era had to do with the week before Christmas. During the Vespers, the last worship of the day, you could hear a chant of O Antiphons, a meditative reflection on seven prophesied descriptions of the Messiah, whose birth mass the Christian church was just about to celebrate. And though we don't have the original musical setting, that O Antiphons may have sounded something like this. Oh. That doesn't sound exactly like the O Come, O Come, Emmanuel that we've come to know over time. So what happened in the transition? Uh, That leads to our next lesson. We're meant to move from song to scripture to Savior. We're deepening that relationship inspired by the song, from song to scripture to Savior. Oh, antiphones basically means anthem or hymn, and the style is composed to be sung with opposite or alternative voices like a call and response. Some unknown creators, it was anonymous really, created seven Latin verses, one for each day from December 17th to December 23rd. The words could come from as early as 450 AD, and the verses form an acrostic in the Latin, and the acrostic is ero cross, which means tomorrow I will come. It's Emmanuel, Rex, Oriens, Clavis, Radix, Adonai, Sapientia. We know today that the ancient text was translated for us in 1851 by Dr. John Mason Neal. He was an evangelical Englishman. He was born 27 years after Methodist founder John Wesley died and about six years after the war again broke out between Great Britain and the United States in 1812. Neal was living among the many advances that had come with the Protestant Reformation as part of the Anglican Church that broke away from Roman Catholicism in the 1530s. Neal had Catholic leanings, and he was a devout traditionalist. He loved plain song, and disliked the irreverent contemporary worship songs by the likes of Isaac Watts with his Joy to the World, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. He loved these songs that featured only vocals without accompaniment. And the tune, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is adapted from a 15th century Roman Catholic funeral requiem. The E minor key adds to the mournful longing of the song. Each day becomes a devotional longing for Jesus in a unique way. Each verse proclaims the good news of the king that is coming. And so if we were following along on our calendars, if we started off on December 17th, it would be with Sapientia. Wisdom from the Most High. And that would push us to the scripture from Isaiah 11, where the promise of the Messiah says that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. Here's the good news that comes from this wisdom. Jesus does not judge by the way things appear. He's less concerned about how tidy our house is over the holidays and far more interested in how loving our hearts are. On the next day, we would look at Adonai, who is the ruler of the house of Israel. In Isaiah eleven four 4 and 5 would tell us that he will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Here's the good news. Jesus is justice. Jesus is justice. If you've ever been wronged or desire to seek revenge against someone who has wronged you, Jesus is working even in that person to bring about a change of heart and forgiveness and redemption. Justice will ultimately come for all because when Jesus comes, justice comes with him. The next day, we would look at Radix Jesse, or the root of Jesse. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Here's the good news. Jesus gives us roots. If you're feeling far away from family this year, or maybe you're feeling a little too close to family that hurts in some way, know that you are grafted into God's long-established family, through the gift and grace of Jesus. On the next day, we would look at Clavis David, which is the key of David. In Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two, it says, I will give him the key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. When he opens doors, no one will be able to shut them. And when he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. And the good news of this is Jesus makes a way. Jesus makes a way. If you're concerned about a job or a relationship or something like that in the season, or maybe we're dealing with grief, we get to know that living right now for Christ means that Jesus will have the right door open for us at the right time. The next day we would look at Oriens, which is the rising dawn or the dayspring. In Isaiah 9, Verse 2, we read about how the people who once walked in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. The good news of this is Jesus gives us light. If we're walking in a dark valley, Jesus is there shining light for your pathway so we will not stumble or fall. And if we're feeling lost in the dark, Jesus has the light needed to find us. The next day we would look at Rex Gentium, the king of the Gentiles. In Isaiah 11.10 we read that in that day the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. The good news of this is Jesus can save anyone. Gentiles were believed by the Jewish people of Jesus' time to be unclean, too unclean to enter into the salvation and family of God. They were seen as dogs, and dogs in Israel at the time were known to devour carcasses and lick their own vomit and things like that. Fortunately, that's not how God looks at us. That's not how God feels about us. Jesus can save anyone. And the next day we look at Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, All right, then the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That good news is pretty simple. God is with you. Even if you're having a hard time feeling it, it's fact. God is with you. That leads to our next lesson. We still long for the resolution that Jesus brings to our uncertain times. We still long for it. Today's scripture points to our longing. Oh, that you would burst forth from the heavens and come down! How the mountains would quake in your presence! But sometimes we feel powerless. That only Jesus could put things right in our lives. We live in a time of political animosity where we disagree on the very nature of truth. We're sometimes conflicted over violence, sometimes violence born of prejudice and look for clear justice. Maybe we're heartbroken over outbreaks of disease that are happening in places that are already overrun by some of the worst poverty of the world. Maybe we're experiencing disease in our own families and heartbroken by that reality. Perhaps we're heartsick over the polarization of a church that calls itself united. Maybe we find ourselves weeping at the graveside with loved ones who have lost their loved ones to death. There are seasons when our lives resonate with the psalmist who sings, Lord, how long will you forgive me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle in anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? But then we're encouraged by the revelator who reminds us that he who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So many of the troubles that we face start off as heart and spiritual sickness, the selfishness and the shame and the sin that cause us to do damage to ourselves and others, and our best human efforts have proven incapable of overcoming these things. And that's what Isaiah is writing about in this prophecy, we're all infected and impure with sin, and when we display our righteous deeds, when we put on our, our best show of goodness, it's nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of God. So like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. And Today, As we prepare for communion, we're going to have an opportunity to confess our sin. And God promises to give us a brand new start. That when we confess, he who is faithful and just will cleanse us of sin and forgive us. And so that's what we'll get to do. We'll get to confess the wrong that we've done and the good that we've failed to do. And with that that encounter with Christ, our hearts change. And So those sins that may infect us or, or haunt us, will be washed away like those leaves that blew off of my lawn with the wind on Tuesday. Thank God. And so God in Christ is the solution. By Jesus taking on flesh and living out divine love and offering that human body as a sacrifice, we are remade again and again. We are soft clay in the hands of a master potter. Yet, O Lord, you are the Father. We are the clay, you are the potter, and we are all formed by your hand. I remember taking a junior high art class, maybe you got to do something like this too, we were to build something in clay and perhaps give it away as a gift to loved ones for Christmas time. I remember building something that was a mix between a lighthouse and a castle, and I'm not to this day sure exactly what it was. But as I worked with the clay, I found that after having left it to sit overnight, I had a different idea in mind for what I wanted to do with it. And the only way to make that change at that point, because it became dry and brittle, it became difficult to move, stubborn even, the only way to make the change was to break it. If, if the clay was still soft and wet, all I would have to do is to mold it, but instead it needed to be broken instead. Now granted, I started off with an imperfect vision of what I wanted that clay to become in the end. God does not suffer from that. God's goal and desire for our lives is that we get to live fully because our lives have been transformed by the power and presence of Jesus Christ. And sometimes the material of our lives can get a little hardened, can get a little brittle. But God's shaping work takes place in us if we spend time near him. It's up to us today to let our hearts be soft, malleable, and moldable like clay. And that's one of the reasons why we approach the table of grace. God gives us this invitation, just as his disciples were invited to join him at the table some 2,000 years ago, God gives the invitation for hardened and brittle hearts to come and be remade again into the likeness of Christ. So I'm going to invite us for just a moment to spend a A couple of seconds in silence to confess before the Lord and to receive the pardon and grace that Christ has for us. Let's just spend a couple of moments in silent confession. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. Thank you for the promise that as we confess to you that you are going to forgive us of our sin, and set us free. Lord, we're grateful that that was all made possible by what you have done for us, and your presence here with us.